gonna just place an order for a year's worth of tea. It was about 500,000 units of tea. So we got the order, we stored it in Hong Kong for a little bit, that cost a bit of money. We paid for the order, that was 1.3 million US dollars. We shipped the tea to Australia, received the tea, opened the tea, looked inside the tea before we'd even, you know, started to send it off to the labs and it was compost with metal bolts in it. Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Mava. Now get comfy, fellow Lady Brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Over the past five years, Greta Van Reel has been a very busy lady. With only a few dollars in her bank account, then 22-year-old Greta launched her very first startup, Skinny Me Tea, which she scaled to $600,000 in revenue in just six months. Since then, she's founded another five businesses and grown her social following to an audience of 16 million. We asked Greta how it all began. I grew up in, well, mostly divorced family. So I had a family on my mum's side and a family on my dad's side. Both my parents are social servants, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. So they're social workers, sort of. Well, my mum's a social worker and my dad works for the Department of Human Services, I think, right now in education budgeting. So definitely a very different world to the one that I began to more so operate in after I'd started my first startup. So it was a really, really good beginning, I guess. And were you entrepreneurial? Did you have a lemonade stand or anything like that? Yeah, well, actually, I just remembered this the other day. We used to put on these plays for my parents and we'd make them pay to access our play. <laughs> to access. <laughs> so we would have put together this pathetic performance, which mostly just involved me dressing up my little brother as a girl. <laughs> of course. Every time. Um, which we have photos of. Uh, and yeah, so we'd put on these little plays and we'd make our parents come and we'd charge them for entry. But yeah, outside of that, not crazily, I don't think, and I never had that kind of aspiration to become entrepreneurial until I started my first full-time job. And what was that? What was your first job? My first full-time job was my first year out of uni. I had just taken a year off in between probably going back and studying a master's. I wanted to travel for six months and work for six months. And I was like, okay, well, I have a degree. So maybe I should just get an actual job, save up even more money, then quit and go travel. So I started a job with a media company in the Melbourne CBD uh, who were transitioning from a print-based media company to a digital company and I was helping them move their communities from print, a little bit of email, across to entirely digital communities. So I was growing kind of engaged little niche communities for them. But apparently I was heading the digital transition to an extent but not and what did you study? So how, like how did you end up in Yeah, I um I studied media and communications. So <laughs> it's a question I get a lot like I often get did you study marketing? 
mm. uh, as an example. And I almost feel guilty to say no. Like off, I actually lie sometimes. I'm like, oh God, so much easier just to say yes. Yes, I studied marketing. <laughs> but I did study marketing in that I studied communications and communications is so central to marketing. I did a few subjects outside my faculty as well in nutrition. And so that kind of blend between a nutrition background and that marketing communications kind of background led me to start my first startup. So you were working full-time when you started your first startup. How did that come about? There was a few things I didn't like about working full-time and not for myself. The fact it wasn't for myself, obviously. The bureaucracy, I guess, kind of the that the political kind of thing. So like my job was to make my CEO look good, not to do my job. Mm. So, and I discovered that pretty quickly in a, a full-on way. So... Yeah, I just, I didn't really like that and I found the hours constraining. And so why Skinny Me Tea? Did you just have an affinity for tea or how did you get started? Well, I was going to a new health food store and they had all these different tea blends and I'd always been really interested in nutrition and definitely like kind of the more hacky sort of parts of nutrition you know, like drinking five cups of green tea a day to increase your metabolism by, you know, however many extra calories you burn a day from that and just other little kind of nutrition hacks so that you can kind of do as little as you possibly had to to get the rewards, (laughs) Uh, which is, you know, everyone's aim. So they had all these different tea blends and they had all these different loose leaf teas. And so I started buying different loose leaf teas and mixing it up myself and, then letting my friends try it, letting my family try it, bringing it into work and people would ask about it and be like, can I try that? And then their friends and their family and their colleagues started asking about it. And I was just getting all these messages from all different angles about this little product, like this detox that I kept doing. So that was the detox tea product. I made quite a few different blends. It was just that was the one that became popular. So because there was so much demand for it, I was like, it's so frustrating having to constantly kind of get back to all these different people and all these different platforms. How do I like make this easier on myself and centralize it? So I just Googled how to make an online store and Shopify gave up. Mm -hmm. So thank God they did. Was it kind of a hobby for you or did you really sit there and think, okay, this is a viable opportunity? It was a bit of a passion project to begin with, but because of how quickly it grew once I did create that online store, I very quickly realized that maybe this wasn't just going to be a hobby. Once I put the store up, I started approaching it as a business without realizing that I was. I was like, well, where's a place that I can talk to all these people? Like which social media channel would I want to be present on? And Instagram had just was gaining popularity at the time. It was still very small. It was in 2012, I think like Justin Bieber had like 400,000 followers on Instagram then. So brands were non-existent on Instagram. You just had to like call yourself at Skinny Me Tea. There was no kind of business way to set it up. So I started an Instagram account before we'd launched the product even just because I had been building online communities at work and I was like, I should make a community for this little thing I'm doing. Actually, I remembered this the other day too, so I haven't actually spoken about it before, but 
I had another Instagram account where I used to sell my clothes online through Instagram before this. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was called shop and swap my wardrobe or something. Mm -hmm. Like I think that was the exact Insta. But I wanted to grow that presence so that when I did put things up, I would sell them faster, obviously. So it was a clear goal. (laughs) So I started doing this really dodgy thing, which was quite hilarious. And I would put up things like, a Celine bag and then I'd leave it up there for like 10 minutes and then write sold. And so many people had been like, and I would use all the hashtags and stuff and be like, Celine, Celine bag for sale, buy me, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and people would go on and it had like a couple of thousand followers already, this shop and swap my wardrobe page. And people would go on and be like, oh, I want the Celine bag. And then I'd be like, sold, sorry, it never existed. <laughs> But then when I did put up my stuff, I'd been creating so much like demand around these fake products that when I put up like my old Zimmerman top that was four years old and like breaking at the seams, people would just buy it straight away. Oh my God, I love that. That is an incredible story. That was like your first foray into this kind of like scarcity model. Oh yeah, for sure. And into Instagram marketing for a brand in a way. Not that it was a brand, but I was making money off it. Like making money from Instagram started then, not when I started Skinny Me Tea. But where I had deviated all the way from was this hobby concept. And when I put the store online, we made four sales in our first night to people I didn't know. So I was like, oh, this is a thing. Well, at first I was like, cool, weekend spending money. Um, And then I was like, this could be a thing. So I realized very early on that this could be something I'd be interested in. I think three weeks later I quit my full-time job. Like I gave them my notice to quit. And I spoke to my friends and family and every single person was like, that is ridiculous, don't be stupid. Stay in your job. This is your dream job. You're getting paid really well for like an undergrad who just finished. Just don't do it. And so I just quit without telling them. So what kind of dollars were you bringing in when you quit? I started making things like, my daily wage in an hour or like my weekly wage in a day or my weekly wage in an hour or my monthly wage in a day. I don't think I got down to my monthly wage in an hour yet, but it had grown very quickly. And it was even just the fact that I just did not have time to be working and doing this. But again, Skinny Me Tea started off with a real scarcity model as well. So I don't know why I've been thinking, I think because yesterday was our sixth birthday. So it made me think through the story a lot more and I was stuck on a plane for like an hour and I was thinking through the story. So I was looking through all my old photos from when we started and it's made me remember a lot of things that I was like that I haven't remembered more recently because it was six years ago. So the way that Skinny Me Tea started as a scarcity model was just because my time was so scarce. I was working full time still at the time. So I'd basically take orders during the week and then I'd be able to fulfill them on a weekend when I actually had time because I was mixing the tea up by hand, packaging it by hand, handwriting the written envelopes and then sending it out. When I discovered Excel mail merge, (laughs) it was like the happiest day of my life. I remember someone telling me and me being like, what do you mean? And then working it all out, working out how to like print names straight onto a label. I was overjoyed until I screwed it up and like ruined $50 worth of labels and cried for like an hour. (laughs) Don't ask me why. Uh, Yeah, if I cried every time I screwed up a $50 project (laughs) I think yeah I'd have about eight years worth of crying (laughs) that's fine so 
So, yeah. <laughs> That's great. And so what point did you realise that you needed to figure out a way to scale the business? It was more figuring out a way to keep up with the growth. Scale in terms of staff was a big <laughs> realisation for me because I thought there was so many less resources then around entrepreneurship and stuff as well. And I thought as a founder, you have to do everything yourself. And I would feel so guilty if I gave one little thing away. Like I didn't, I didn't give anything away. I wanted to do everything. Like even for the first six months of the company, we scaled from zero to 600,000 US dollars a month in revenue. And I was still doing every single piece of customer service. Not one of our customers yet. I think we're selling like 10,000 packs of tea a month or something just after this and still manufacturing ourselves. <laughs> Not one. The only areas that I had help in were the logistics of sending the tea out, like taking it to a post office and manually mixing it by hand. So kind of like manual labor jobs. But not one person had spoken to anyone else in the company except me. I was the only person that handled every single piece of communications in the company. So every single piece of marketing communications, every single piece of social media, every single piece of customer service. I'm so happy now that I did do that. Mm. Well, I, I feel slightly sorry for myself still working 15-hour days for that long. It was just disgusting. I remember I would like wake up, do the customer service emails in bed like seven hours straight and then go think that I could do some other things like marketing. But yeah, it was just Instagram was definitely what fueled our growth because we did start at that time where growth was, well, you know, you want to say like growth was a lot easier in those days. I don't want to put people off Instagram today either. Growth isn't as easy, but it's still achievable. And there's some incredible stories of Brands like Bambi Boutique being able to explode their social following with a few influencer collaborations and some giveaways to 150,000 followers in a week. We didn't grow nearly that quickly. But the thing was Instagram was also extremely powerful because it was one of the first times, like what I liked about Instagram was that on Facebook, it's kind of you market to like your friends and they just started introducing kind of interests and stuff. I loved that Instagram was like an interest-based economy rather than a friend-based economy. I liked that anybody could start a page on kind of any topic and grow a following around that topic rather than around like who they knew. That was definitely one of the reasons that I loved Instagram. But the other way that we obviously grew on Instagram was through influencer marketing. So Basically, a girl from Tasmania bought our tea and she had about a 1,000 followers at the time and we had our biggest day of sales ever. And because I was so across everything because I was the only one doing it, I could directly notice, obviously, the correlation between the sales increasing and her post. So without actually having any sort of like marketing tracking in or anything, I didn't know what that was. So I was like, God, well, every time that I see some girl that suits our company that has over a thousand followers, I'm just going to screenshot them and comment on the most recent photo and like send them an email. And I started doing that. And now I think Skinny Me Tea has collaborated with over like 3,500 influencers when I last checked. You were mixing the tea here. When did you stop doing that? And did you explore overseas opportunities? <laughs> yeah. The first thing that we explored after the self-mixing, 
I don't want to give too many. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't <laughs> want to freak anyone out, obviously. And then it's totally fine because I'll explain why we didn't end up going with this option. But I moved to Hong Kong and we were playing with Chinese manufacturing. Playing makes it sound fun. Uh, but we had tested a few different runs with a manufacturer and they'd all been great. We had them sent back to Australia for quality control. We had them tested by food labs. Um, it's called food labs, the testing facility. They came back perfect. The actual ingredients that we'd asked for were in there. No bacteria, no E. coli, none of the nasty stuff. So we were like, okay. And I was like, cool. Well, I hate manufacturing. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just place an order for a year's worth of tea, which was, I think, close to like a ton of tea. And it was actually, I think it would be even more than a year's worth of tea. It was about 500,000 units of tea. So we got the order. We stored it in Hong Kong for a little bit. That cost a bit of money. We paid for the order. That was 1.3 million US dollars. We shipped the tea to Australia. That didn't cost a huge amount because we shipped it uh, via sea, which I think is 50 cents a kilo from memory. And like air freight is $6 a kilo from memory. Those might have changed slightly now. So we shipped it to Australia. Then it got stuck in customs for three weeks. That cost nearly, uh, I think it was $85,000. Received the tea, opened the tea, looked inside the tea before we'd even, you know, started to send it off to the labs and it was compost with metal bolts in it. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. My gosh. It didn't contain almost any of the ingredients we'd asked for. You could see pieces of metal, metal springs, metal bolts in the tea. When we did send it off to the food labs for a laugh, it was full of E. coli. <gasps> uh, wow. Like I wouldn't even let my staff touch it without gloves on. It was just disgusting. And I called my manufacturer clearly upset. And what had happened was in China, there's legally no regulation around how many times you can subcontract. Even though we'd subcontracted them, they had then subcontracted someone else. They had all subcontracted it right out. I don't know how many levels out it got. He doesn't know. All he knows is they gave it to someone else who might have given it whatever. Right. So basically he was like, well, it's not my fault. It's whoever that subcontractor subcontracted and whatever else. That's not our fault. Legally, it's not my fault. And I called my boyfriend at the time who is a litigator in Hong Kong. So he knew a lot about this and he was like, he's right to an extent. It's wrong, but he is right. Like it's wrong. It's unfair. It's like mm. it's a shit thing to happen, but you probably won't even win and it'll cost you more than that amount to go through the legal system. So what material impact did that have on your business? Because $1.2 million or whatever, like that's a big sunk cost. It was huge. The biggest impact that it had because we were very cash flow positive at the time was that then we were two or three months behind on production again, like straight up. So if we wanted to work with another manufacturer, we would have just been screwed. So we had to go back to doing it by hand again and we had to scale up staff really quickly to be able to be doing that. Like poor Ella was basically running like a shift work system. So that was the biggest impact. We paid cash for the order, so we didn't borrow. One of the big lessons was that 
in especially like an early stage e-commerce startup that has high growth, when I am thinking about things like pricing and when anybody is thinking about something like pricing, buffering in 10 to 20% in that pricing additional for the mistakes you're going to make is such a good risk averse strategy. So you're a few years into SMT and then you decide to launch another company or multiple other companies. <laughs> Tell us a bit about those and what, what was the next thing? I was two years into SMT, well, two and a half years into SMT when I co-founded The Fifth. So The Fifth was at the time a company where we'd sell minimal classic designed watches at an affordable price. But our difference was that we only sold the watches on the fifth of each month for five days. So there was this huge kind of scarcity and exclusivity time play coming in there. Like usually a designer item is exclusive because of its price tag, whereas we were able to access that mass available kind of price tag of under the $200 mark while still having that increased perceived value because of the scarcity. So it was just this really cool thing that happened kind of upon itself. The way that that came about was, well, the name The Fifth, it was like it's a very much a like chicken and the egg scenario. Like people think that it's called The Fifth because we sell on The Fifth for five days, but we actually sold on The Fifth for five days because we were called The Fifth already. So my co-founder called me when I was in New York and I was on Fifth Avenue at the time and he was like, what's a good name for this company? And I was like, no, I don't know, uh, The Fifth. Because I just looked out of my Uber window and was like, oh, yeah, fifth, fashion, fifth. Yeah, sure, that works. I'm not overly invested in what a company's name is a lot of the time. Like there's Uber, there's Sephora, there's all these random words that mean nothing mm-hmm. and you can give them the meaning that you want them to mean, which is the exciting part about it. But, yeah, so we called it the fifth for that reason and then the fifth of the month was my co-founder's birthday. So we got the stock on maybe the second and we were like, let's just wait a couple more days. We're called the fifth. Let's release on the fifth. And we released and sales went much better than expected. We did over $100,000 on our first day of sales. So it was crazy. Uh, It was his best birthday ever. Almost everything had sold out and we're like, oh my God, we're going to be sold out in like two days. And one of my favorite things in the world about marketing is the way that you can make something accidental look like you did it on purpose and the way that you can turn a negative into a positive. So I was like, how do we make the rest of the people on our mailing list? Because we had about 8,000 people on our mailing list and we only had about 1,000 watches. We basically sold all those. So we're like, how do we make the other 7,000 people not hate us because they've already been actively waiting for these products for the last like three months? So... We just made it look like we'd done it deliberately. More like, little did you know. <laughs> little did you know. Little did you that know. was little a one-day so. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Enjoy. I forgot to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that's literally basically what we said. And we're like, so what we do is we sell on the 5th of each month for five days or until sold out previously. If that's five minutes, so be it. And, yeah, that, that model worked really well. Mm. How did you develop a mailing list of 8,000 people before you'd even launched the brand? That is actually a very good question. And the reason that that mailing list was such a warm mailing list as well, like 
most people don't launch and sell to an eighth of their mailing list. That is a very high conversion mm, rate and huge. still have another, like, a lot of them asking why they can't buy. So there were a few different ways. That mailing list was made up either of people who had directly signed up just to be on that mailing list only for that purpose. So that's a really big one. So the quality of the leads was like the first big kind of conversion factor for us. So the fact that a lot of companies start out by, you know, giving away something in their industry like a GoPro or something like that and getting 16,000 signups to buy their GoPro, that doesn't mean they're going to buy anything from your brand unless your brand is GoPro. So you'd be better off selling that mailing list to GoPro Mm -hmm. to get your money back. So basically the fact that it was so opt-in and the fact that it was such a warm list because of that opt-in process and where those opt-ins came from as well. So they almost all exclusively came from Instagram and a vast majority of those came through influencers. So they were already people who had experienced our brand in one way or another, had experienced or heard about that brand through a referral from somebody that they felt like they knew and that they trusted. So it was that leveraging of that pre-earned trust in combination with the fact that we had a very, very targeted mailing list, I guess. Like we didn't just want numbers for the sake of numbers. So, but to build that Instagram presence in the first place, and I was just talking about this yesterday, I did a talk on influencer marketing at Queensland University of Technology to their um, accelerator programs, so Collider and Fashion 360. And this is something I'd kind of forgotten as well. So this is why I love like interviews and presentations and stuff. I always remember these things I didn't even know. All the stuff comes out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So when we started building this Instagram for the fifth, it was actually more a vertical account in that niche, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a sec, rather than a branded account. So one of the things that I've done with Instagram to build up my following on there has been to build accounts surrounding all of my brands within the same niche or within different niches that surround those brands. So for Skinny Me Tea, for example, I also have a lot of different accounts surrounding like food and fitness and detoxing in general. So I have like detox tips, detox water, nutrition planet, like smoothie planet, Be Fit Foods, Be Fit Babes, all these different accounts that kind of act top of funnel in that like awareness stage and the acquisition in that funnel would be getting them to follow my branded account. So we're able to kind of use those as exposure to leverage that branded account. With the fifth, the way that started was the account actually started off as this concept called the fifth view. And that was basically a view from above down. And so that was right when flat lays and stuff were just taking off. So we were just reposting kind of beautiful influencer generated flat lay content all the time on this account and growing that account up in that vertical But then it was the way that we were able to transition that vertical account into a branded account without kind of burning our followers that was really interesting. So we kind of did that through delayed introduction to the brand. It's not like we just suddenly changed it into the watch account and we're like, deal with it. We'll lose a few followers. It's fine. Like if those people don't want to be there, it doesn't matter if they're following you or not. 
and if they're not actively following your brand. But what we did was we involved the entire kind of community in that transition. So we started planning products with them and then we settled on watches. Then we started watch planning which styles of watches we'd have. Then we settled on the five watches that we'd launch with. So it was kind of crowdsourcing demand through that community so that they had that level of involvement as well, which meant that it made sense to them for us to then transition over that page to be the fifth watches one day. And we were able to grow a community before we launched to about 70,000 Instagram followers. So by transitioning that kind of vertical account across and while keeping that audience really, really engaged, that was kind of the way that we were able to grow quite quickly without it just being for the product. What impact did micro or macro influences have on the brand? When we first got the watches, we got about 30 samples from a manufacturer and we sent those 30 sample watches out oh my gosh, like some of them didn't even work. They didn't even tick or anything. We just needed content. Like I don't even have a problem saying, (laughs) I know you guys are laughing at me, but I don't mind leaving that in. Like the influencers knew that they were samples and that we needed content created for the aesthetic of the watches and don't worry, they will work one day. Um, (laughs) We will send you a working one. (laughs) We will replace your watch if it doesn't work. So we sent them out to 30 different people that, I'd worked with before with Skinny Me Tea, for example, or that were just really keen on the brand because they had been following the page. And so then the influencers were really engaged with the brand too. And 70,000 followers was still back in 2014, quite a sizable page. So we were able to offer things like reposting their content on the page. Rather than paying them. Yes. But to that end, I would never, ever offer an influencer now exposure in return for a post unless you have like 50 times the followers of them which is usually quite unlikely for a brand but it's hilarious when brands with like 2,000 followers approach an influence with 200,000 and say create content for us in return for exposure they're like uh where is that (laughs) (laughs) sorry I'm confused um I just I think it's so offensive as well to influencers and the hard work that they put in Mm. in building their communities, in creating the content, in losing followers over creating brand and content as well. Mm. You almost have to be paying an influencer for their follower loss too because if it's not the perfect fit for them and some brands just want to collaborate with macro influencers that have huge reach regardless of what the fit is, Mm. Kardashian. Ah, perfect example. (laughs) Brands just want to get in front of her audience. They don't necessarily care about what the repercussions of that are. And she would lose followers over that. They should be reimbursed for that. So, yeah, basically we sent these products out. We got quite a lot of hype around it and we had a really clear call to action for the campaign, which was to sign up for access to the watches once they dropped kind of thing. And still back in 2014, not that many campaigns on Instagram had been run exactly like that and it was very successful and a vast majority of those 8,000 people would have come from those 30 influencers. Because you'd spent so much time and so many years working on brands that you'd built through social, you decided to kind of pivot into tech and Mm. build something around that. Can you tell us about that? had a lot to do with the decision. It was also, I think, Hey Influencers, which is my 
now project. So the thing that I spend the most of my time on, which is our influencer marketing platform, I say our because I'm in the room with one of my colleagues. <laughs> um, so Hay was very much scratching an itch. So I knew from working with influencers how complicated that workflow was and how much I, even if I was just creating this product just for myself and my brands to use, I would find it so useful to simplify that process, to automate the certain parts that could be automated while leaving in all the parts that shouldn't be automated like relationship building. You can't build a relationship through automation. (laughs) People are people. Influencers are humans. Who would have known? So that's why I moved into that space because I'd also been advising a lot other e-com companies. I could just see that influencer marketing was a big topic that they would approach me about and I just thought, okay, well, if I'm advising, I can only really give like advice from me to the person that I'm giving it to. In like creating a tool was a way to scale that advisory and be like, look, this is the way that I do it. Now you literally have a tool at your fingertips where you can do the same thing. So that's kind of the way that Hay was born. Mm, amazing. And this business has been a bit different because with your other businesses, you really were kind of bootstrapping, but you raised yeah. for this. How was that process? I'm the worst example possible. (laughs) Explain. (laughs) In what way? (laughs) I pitched to Blackbird and they said, I think it was later that day, that they did want to take the investment on. Then they sent us a term sheet and then we worked hard toward closing that term sheet, which, yes, was a process, but usually it takes a lot longer to pitch. But given my track record, given the fact that I'd been on both sides of the market as both, you know, an influencer, not quite always, whatever, but to an extent Mm -hmm. having those 16 million followers on Instagram combined across like 20 different accounts Mm -hmm. and then also having worked on the brand side, they thought that there wasn't any other better person to be solving this problem than me. It wasn't all that hard to convince them that that was the case and they could see I was passionate and I answered all their questions and yeah it was a dream working with Blackbird they've been incredible this entire time they give you as much or as little attention as you want they take quite a hands-off approach which is kind of what you need from a seed level investment at least Mm. you need kind of that freedom to be able to grow your company in the way that you want to to make your mistakes in the way that you need to and It's great that often like I just got back into the office from having a meeting with Sam from Blackbird and I was like, oh, I just had a meeting with Sam, you know, she's one of our ambassadors and everyone's like, oh, scary. And I'm like, no, no, it's like a fun catch up. She's, it's like advisory. She's giving me advice. Like it's more like a mentoring type thing. It's not like, tell me exactly what your numbers are. No, they're not good enough. Like, yeah, she's not a producer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because you have that track record, you know, the process was a little more seamless. So what advice would you have for, I guess, people who are listening, who are brand owners, who are going through that process, but don't have that track record, or they want to start a company and they're starting from scratch? If you can bootstrap as far as you can, like investors want to see as many results as they possibly can to then make a decision. A really good piece of advice, like any startup advice, would be to grow a community before you launch. And if you have that community, an engaged community, 
there to apply a product to, investors are going to be that much more likely to see the way that you can just easily put two and two together. Like at least then you only need to fulfill the product end of the equation, not the market end of the equation. I call it market product fit over product market fit. If you can achieve some market product fit first, so building a market before you launch a product, that's going to be really, really helpful. And then for people who are just starting out now, obviously Instagram was quite different when you launched. It's still a really viable platform, but Mm -hmm. what advice would you have for someone that is- Just starting out? Just starting out now. Like what can you do on Instagram? Would you go to another channel? Like if you were launching a brand today- I think Instagram is still a really, really valuable channel. I'm not sure that I would go to another channel right now, no. Uh, In terms of just starting out, I was actually, good question because I was just replying to a Burlo or Obelo, whatever they're called, uh, like that dropshipping company that Shopify acquired uh, and they'd asked me the same question. So I had to actually start doing some thinking around it and I came up with the three Cs. So... The first C is content, the second C is collaboration, and the third C is consistency. So in terms of content, there's a few different tips. I mean, those are the three main things that are good to focus on, but then obviously there's so many tips that you can give under each. But I don't want to give the generic like this is how you take a photo, this is how you filter a photo kind of advice. I think people listening to this are probably a little bit past that advice. They know that sort of stuff. So a couple of things that I would definitely talk about under content would be this concept of content weighting. So weighting your content toward the content that performs better on your page versus the content that doesn't. So say you post three different types of photos and one type is smoothie bowls, one type is smoothies in a jar, and one type is like smoothies in a cup. And smoothie bowls outperform the other two by 200% every time, post more smoothie bowls. (laughs) It sounds like a really obvious piece of advice, but people often have this idea that you need to post certain pieces of content to represent your brand in a certain way. Like they'll be like, oh, no, no, I need to post more lifestyle-related content, even though the content that actually performs best on their page is a like close-up photo of their product. Like with the fifth, for example, all the best performing content wasn't those like far away, travelly, mythical, <laughs> mythical, I mean aspirational <laughs> kind of shots. It was actually just they were there to see the watches. They wanted to see them looking stunning on someone's wrist close up and that would outperform those by a lot. But at the same time, we'd be like, oh, we don't want to always be posting the product. It doesn't mean you only post the smoothie bowls from now on. Just weight that content a lot more heavily, like maybe like two or three posts to one post. And then you're keeping that engagement up with your content. And another content tip would be reposting viral content. So in terms of reposting viral content, it's identifying when a piece of content has gone viral. And what I mean by that is Instagram and Instagram's algorithm, kind of similar to on Twitter, how words cause Twitter's algorithm to know that something's trending. On Instagram, Instagram's a very visual software. Pictures cause Instagram's algorithm to know that something's trending on Instagram. So they have visual recognition software that was built into Instagram for 
things like identifying uh, content that needed to be moderated, so like nudity or any kind of graphic images um, or, you know, things that are illegal clearly to post online. And then they started using that uh, visual recognition technology to identify trending content. So if a picture has outperformed on an influencer's page, for example, or on a niche page, like in whichever vertical, like at detox or something, if a picture has outperformed the other posts significantly, say they usually get about 2,000 likes on average and then one has 8,000, that picture will have triggered within the algorithm that that piece of content, that style of content is more popular than others. So if you repost that exact photo again, it will outperform other posts on your page, which is kind of cool. So now we're moving on to the next topic, which is collaboration. So like we've spoken about already, influencers are an amazing way to collaborate. Other ways to collaborate are through, let's say you're a brand, for example. You can think brand to influencer collaboration. You can think brand to brand collaboration. So, you know, those big loop giveaways that we're seeing at the moment, you can involve influencers in the loop giveaways. Again, you can mix it all up. Yeah, there's just so many multi-directional ways to collaborate and there's so many different ways again. So, you know, you could join an engagement pod and I'm not going to go into all the details about what an engagement pod is right now, but if people Google Instagram engagement pod, how to, it'll all come up. (laughs) (laughs) And we have a lot of details on the Hey Influencers website about them as well. Mutual free shout-outs or paid shout-outs. A shout-out is basically when you tag somebody else and they tag you back at the same time would be like an SFS, so a shout-out for Mm shout-out. And they're still a great way to collaborate. And that can be with influencers, it can be with pages, it can be with brands. There's all different ways to give someone a shout-out. Again, very Googleable. And then there's all different types of giveaways. So there's tag-to-win giveaways uh, where you just tag a friend and either you or both of you win the prize. I think they work a lot better if you get, like if you give away two of the item and get the friend to follow as well. Because I mean, why otherwise if a friend tagged you on a random product and said like, follow this page, would you if you're not going to win anything? I'd be like, no, friend. No, friend. Stop wasting my time, <laughs> no, friend. friend. You are a friend, but I, you're not that good a friend. As long as you give me the follow prize. this random brand, I don't even, you know. So, yeah, there's there's some different collaboration techniques. And then consistency is one of those kind of annoying ones that you just have to mention, showing up and being there. I think one of the better ways to think of it isn't just like, oh, I'm on here to post every day just because, like, that's what I'm meant to do, like whatever else. Algorithmically, so like scientifically, there is a basis behind consistency as well. Instagram likes your page to be growing in momentum of engagements. And if you are not consistent and that engagement is taken from like one of your posts is your whole week of engagement on Instagram, it's not going to be enough. So if you're posting, that's what happens to pages that if they're posting every day and then stop and don't post for a week, their reach will decrease by a lot because their um, overall momentum has decreased, their overall engagement has decreased and therefore Instagram starts penalising their page and showing their content to less people. So what do you think has been your biggest pinch me moment? Winning the Shopify Build a Business competition. And I was in Hong Kong out to dinner at the time and I got the call and walked outside the restaurant and got on the phone and got told and I was just so excited and I was 
you know, I was overseas in this huge new city, just surrounded by buildings and lights and billboards and just so much business and commerce. And I just felt like it was like the center of the business world and that I was in the right place at the right time, finally, (laughs) after all the things that had like screwed up so far already. This was still before the tea manufacturing issue (laughs) incident (laughs) incident makes it sound good um I like incident uh so yeah I'd still say it was that and finally what's next for Greta and her empire well I think people expect that you know the whole five years five startups thing that in the next five years there'll be another five what I'm learning the more that I get into things is the importance of tunnel vision the importance of tasking down, the importance of saying no to even things that you think are incredible opportunities at the time. So anything that I am taking on going forward will be very, very high influences related. And outside of that, it would take a very, very large opportunity to sway me. So we will see. And all those well-known entrepreneurs Greta now does the speaking circuit with... The funny part is at the time I didn't even know who these people were because I didn't follow any entrepreneurial like blogs or anything. I read the blurb of the Lean Startup and was like, I already do that. I was like, I am the fucking Lean Startup. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.